My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me High. The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. Walking in here on my knees, Ed. Free man proposing. That occurred. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. Ed felt that having a critter was the next logical step. Ha! I'm barren. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. The Arizona Quince was born. But we thought it was unfair that some should have so many while others should have so few. But at the time, Ed's little plan seemed like the solution to all our problems and the answer to all our prayers. Mr. Arizona, which top was abducted? Peyton Jr., I think. I think I got the best one. <laughs> that night I had a dream. But now I was haunted by a vision of... Oh, he was horrible. A lone biker of the apocalypse. A man with all the powers of hell at his command. He could turn the day into night and lay to waste everything in his path. Who the hell are you? Smalls, littered smalls. My friends call me Liddy. But I got no friends. I'm not a customer. I'm a man hunter. Now, of course, I do hunt babies on occasion. Here you got one you can't put your hand to. In Raising Arizona, I'll read you the IMDB one line so that everybody's... When a childless couple of an ex-con and an ex-cop decide to help themselves to one of another family's quintuplets, their lives become more complicated than they anticipated. That's the lamest description of Raising Arizona you could possibly ever come up with. Uh, it is absolute insanity. Uh, it is a world that uh, I think truly reflects the world that we live in. Uh, it's as if you took um, oh, all the stuff that's going on now and presented it. Uh, if the Coen brothers wrote it, you'd see how really absurd it all is. It's surreal. It's absurd. But it seems awfully true to what I see America as if you turned it upside down and looked at it. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Victor Miller talking about Joel and Ethan Cohen's 1987 film, Raising Arizona. Mr. Miller is a novelist, screenwriter, and daytime Emmy-winning television writer. He is best known to horror fans and listeners of the show for writing Friday the 13th and creating Jason Voorhees. Mr. Miller, thanks so much for being on the show. It is my pleasure. I just got up to close the door. I'm back. <laughs> All right. Now, this is real. <laughs> With every episode, uh, we usually begin with my asking, out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss, why go with, you know, well, whatever movie is chosen. In this case, I'll ask the same, but also, when asked to choose a horror movie to discuss, what made you go with Raising Arizona, a movie that uh, some could be forgiven for not immediately considering, you know, a horror film? And if I can, I'll note that uh, this is the second time a Coen Brothers movie has made an appearance on this podcast after uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead discussed No Country for Old Men on their episode. Anyway, sorry, sir. Uh, so why why horror? What is the horror that you see in Raising Arizona in addition to it being, uh, you know, marvelous sort of absurd comedy? Um, 
in a in a funny way, and it's it you know they could have chosen Barton Fink as well. That's a, certainly a horror movie. Um, but um, I think what's what's horrible is the the total lack of uh, morality that's uh, ex- exists in this movie. They they it's almost as if there is no there is no moral code. Now, if you want to go to to true horror, uh, my favorite horror movie would have been. Well, there are two. Uh, one would have been the original French Diabolique, uh, and the other one would be The Haunting of Hill House, uh, uh, the original one, which was fabulous um, and scared the bejesus out of me. But, uh, no, I think the Coen brothers have this sense that um, they can make a comedy about terrible things. I mean, we're talking about kidnapping a child. Uh, and they make it funny, you know, with the ladder up to the window, and then they uh, they are reaching in to to take one of the five babies out of the crib, and the babies get loose and crawl over the floor. I mean, it's it's really horror, but not in the kind that uh, most of your uh, your listeners uh, are used to. And so, I just think, um, in some ways, it. It could be thought of um, in the theater of the absurd as as more horrible than anything else because, you know, we've got um, uh, Jason Voorhees running around as a grown up now uh, killing people. But here we're talking about stealing a baby uh, and just picking picking one of five, any any baby you want um, and then running away with it and trying to pass it off as your own. Um, And then the the two uh, his two friends, John Goodman and. um, Oh God! Uh, William Forsythe come popping out of the the ground, having escaped from prison, um, and uh, they uh, muscle uh, hide uh, Nicholas Cage into uh, bank robbery and other sort of things. So um, I find that really kind of scary. Uh, but if you if you want to stick to pure horror, then I would say Diabolique has it. Yeah, no, I I do agree with you, I think, when it comes to Raising Arizona. And I think we can also look at the Coen Brothers' entire filmography and see many times over that they managed to blend several types of genres together at once to sort of make their own, you know, kind of unique, um, uh, you know, blend, as it were, of uh, various types of tones and whatnot. Because, you know, when we look at other movies that they've done, like, uh, you know, you mentioned Barton Fink, but also... uh, Blood Simple and certainly Fargo, mm-hmm. uh, oh, Little Brother Where Art Thou. You know, yep. so many marvelous movies that we, you know we might think of initially as being comedies, or uh, you know, in Fargo's case, certainly drama. But I do think they like to touch on horror quite a bit, or at least horrific images, horrific, uh, horrific setups, as it were. You know, I can't think of a single. Well, I wouldn't say a single thing, but I can't think of many things in Raising Arizona that is overtly horrific, but I think you're absolutely right in that the basic setup is really terrifying in a way. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you have a child who is stolen by a couple that might mean well, but the fact that they're, uh, <laughs> you know, they're probably not the greatest people to be raising a child at that point in their lives anyway, and the fact right. that they're going to take another, and you know, the various situations that the poor child finds itself in throughout the course of the movie, if told from the kid's point of view, um, yeah, 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 it is quite scary. But, you know, I said I couldn't think of... Uh, any moments that are overtly horrific, I, I I think that's wrong. I think, you know, you mentioned John Goodman coming out of the ground uh, when he and oh, William Forsyth yeah. escape. That is shot like an old school horror movie. You know, it's a dark right. and stormy night and uh, Goodman comes up out of the ground like a zombie just 
roaring. And it is, <laughs> you know, for a moment, I think it does actually become a horror movie with capital H at that point. And, you know, when he reaches into the ground and pulls out William Forsythe, that would be equally terrifying, except, you know, and you got to hand it to the Coen brothers for being able to constantly twist the tones that they're dealing with. He pulls him out upside down and immediately right. it becomes humorous again, you know, um, and I love that. And then, and then, and then they end up in a uh, in a uh, gas station restroom, uh, cleaning up and putting pomade on their heads. <laughs> I mean, it is absurdist horror, is what it is. Maybe we can create a new uh, a new genre. And uh, but then, if you go over to Fargo, remember the um, the guy in the backyard with the wood chipper stuffing a body in the uh, in the fifty five gallon drum or whatever it is, um, and uh, through the through the wood chipper. Um, so, I mean, the, the Coen brothers can, can do things which, um, I think cut closer to what I think modern society is all about than for instance, um, uh, some monster or, you know, the undead. I, I, my own sense of horror, I like real people doing real horrible things. And um, I, I don't do, I mean, I, I, I don't really go to science fiction horror. Uh, and uh, if you have a ghost, I say, okay, that's nice. Um, but, um, I mean, to me, I mean, for, go, let's go to Mrs. Voorhees. She's real. And she has a real machete. And she's killing real teenagers. Um, and that's, uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty scary. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly... You know, since you brought up uh, Mrs. Voorhees, I was wondering, you know, if your own approach to the original movie was to ground it and keep it real. And, you know, the, the, the threat in the movie, as it were, is a real person as opposed to, say, a, uh, a ghost, a wraith or a zombie or, you know, hulking maniac. Um, how might you have and by the way, I should probably mention with this podcast, this is uh, we digress often. So the conversation could go any which way. And uh, I think it might just now. But, you know, I had to ask, you know, if you had sort of held the reins for the uh, the follow ups of that initial movie, can you tell us what they might have looked like as opposed to what it eventually became? Oh, if I had. Gosh, I have no clue as to uh, how I would have done that. Um, my my own intention um, in because I I only thought of this as as a one shot, so uh, I wasn't looking down the road. I wasn't uh, preparing for a way that uh, Jason could still be alive, um, because the whole point was that she was she was uh, torturing people um, because they had let her son die, uh, and in and in historical now that uh, clearly he hadn't died, um, but. Uh, no, I, I really don't have a, a clue as to how I would have approached it. I think quite possibly the way they did um, and just uh, bite the bullet. Excellent. All right. And so, you know, looking back at Raising Arizona for a moment and, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't help but draw a parallel here, you know, thinking about Jason Voorhees just briefly and what he became later on, this hulking maniac. To go back to Raising Arizona, we were talking about, you know, potential horror imagery in it and, of course, Goodman rising out of the earth and whatnot. And it occurs to me, too, that Leonard Smalls is kind of a hulking maniac in his own right and is really kind of terrifying. He's probably the most horrific thing about the movie, to me anyway, at least so far as how he's presented, because, you know, I think the first time we see him in the film, he is appearing in High's Dream. 
as right. this sort of nightmarish, uh, I believe High calls him in uh, the vision, the, uh, the lone biker of the apocalypse. And uh, he, he just cuts this uh, horrific figure in the film. And I think we're meant to believe as audience members, you know, thank God that he only exists in High's dream. It must be his perhaps guilt manifested over what's going right. on. And then we find out later that, no, he is, in fact, a real guy, at least so far as the movie is concerned, uh, a man named Leonard Smalls, who I swear, I think his leather pants were actually hairy uh, in in a shot. <laughs> he's wearing like leather all over. He's this hulking right. figure. He's bearded. He has long hair. He has uh, grenades strapped to him. He has these two big shotguns. The, the bike he rides might as well be a dragon for, you know, how it roars down the road and breathes fire. But it, it, strangely enough, when we finally get to hear the man speak, when he... Um, visits Mr. Arizona and sort of offers his services. He's oddly polite and soft-spoken and articulate. Right. And, you know, it occurs to me that the Coen brothers do that quite a bit. They sort of take our expectations for who, you know, certain archetypes uh, yeah. are and how they should behave. And they sort of turn them on their head. I think the same is true of High as well. You know, High is a, a very, very articulate, very well-spoken dimwit. And... He, speaks, he speaks in, in uh, Elizabethan language at times. Uh, he, he really he really does. Uh, when he saw the, the, her womb was a, a, a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase or something like that, <laughs> which is which is completely insane for a guy who just steals um, uh, uh, hu huggy diapers from the uh, local store. I mean, it's just um, the combination. And, of course, I think that uh, Randall Tex Cobb uh, was meant to be some kind of uh, avenging person. And, of course, while he's uh, being uh, polite, and except putting his feet up on the desk of, uh, of uh, oh, God, uh, Nathan Arizona Sr.'s desk, and then he just grabs a fly out of the air. Um, showing that he is indeed uh, a force to be reckoned with, um, and uh, so it's he's an apocalypse. But at the same time, uh, the Coen brothers allow our hero uh, to uh, to uh, to kill him in the end. And I think one of the the key things, uh, as as I was going back over the movie and thinking about it, uh, if you remember the tattoo that was on uh, Randall Tex Cobb's arm. It was uh, Woody Woodpecker. Um, <laughs> and I think that informs the plot quite a bit in the sense that this is a huge, this is a cartoon horror. It's a horror, horror cartoon because none of these characters could survive uh, outside the real world except maybe Nathan Arizona Sr. and his wife. Um, but, uh, I mean, Holly Hunter is the world's worst policewoman. Um, the, the parole board keeps letting this idiot out. Uh, this idiot keeps surviving. Uh, and by the end of the movie, he has committed more goddamn felonies um, than you could count. <laughs> and he uh, has has this, uh, oh, this idyllic uh, pastoral end with uh, being at the family uh, with these wonderful children. And they they uh, splashed a happy ending on the end of something that should have all gone down with uh, 
with uh, Leonard Smoltz. So uh, what you can make of that, I don't know. But it, to me, it is, um, it's crazy enough to, to match what I see in today's political uh, environment. And that's horror. Agreed. <laughs> but can I ask, you know, with the happy sure. ending that they are gifted at the end, yeah. do you believe that that is the ending meant for them, that that's the ending that they're actually going to get? Because, I mean, you know, we mentioned earlier when uh, when Littered Smalls is introduced, it's not in uh, in real life, as it were, you know, within the world of the film. It's, uh, right. it's with High actually having a dream. And so in that case, long before... Uh, High meets Leonard for the first time, he is mm -hmm. dreaming about him and he is talking about him and thinking about him and then it comes true and then the movie ends on the note with High actually, you know, seeing into the future and uh, imagining a future in which he and Ed have kids and grandkids and uh, so do you think that there is sort of an element of prophecy when it comes to Ed and do you think, or sorry, uh, with uh, High and does he? Uh, do you think he and Ed actually get that happy ending later on down the road? I I never questioned whether they got the ending in the, at the end of the road because the uh, Coen brothers were so careful to give me um, an idyllic uh, scene which I wanted to buy, um, and so they took me into their uh, logic, which of course is uh, totally illogical, and that's why I think this uh, this whole thing is so surreal and. Um, because it it claims to be absolutely 100% real. We have real cops chasing uh, real kidnappers and stuff like that. And we have uh, hand grenades and shotguns and every other thing you could have in a, a bank uh, robbery. But in the in the middle of that, they leave the baby on top of the uh, <laughs> on top of the station wagon, <laughs> and the baby almost gets killed, uh, and and the car almost runs it over, and the and uh, Leonard Smalls picks it up on the fly and. Um, I, I just find this so much more, um, terrifying and yet I laugh my ass off. Um, and I think that's, that's a different kind of, uh, of horror movie. And of course I, I would never, if I were writing a book, I wouldn't put this in my horror chapter, uh, necessarily, but I just, I find, um, the Coen brothers, uh, have, Oh, a different, you know, needless to say, a very different way of looking at things. Look at Miller's Crossing. Uh, there's so much horror in that. Um, that I mean, you've got people burning uh, the fires underneath their beds, um, and uh, the, uh, the the cops uh, eviscerating the gangs and um, the the Cohen. I want to have dinner with the Cohen brothers. Uh, <laughs> So I can just ask them, for instance, in Miller's Crossing, there are constant references to hats. Um, and if you, I've watched the movie about 12, 14 times. And if you just watch it from the standpoint of what the actors do with the hats on their heads and where they put them. And then in the dialogue, there are always these phrases like, uh, he's gone high hat on me. Um, and so I would just love to ask him that question alone. And then uh, if they hadn't thrown me away from the table at dinner, I would uh, then go on to Barton Fink and, uh, and uh, Raising Arizona. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, looking at some of the other films, too, like, um, you know, No Country for Old Men, which, again, we had on this podcast before. The case was made that uh, 
Anton Chigurh is essentially a slasher film character. You know, he just <laughs> happens to carry a gun. And I think, uh, you know, that's very true in a way. We look at the lady killers and as riotously funny as that film is at times, yeah. uh, it's also a, a lot of really terrible things happen in that film. And what amazes me about the Coen brothers as storytellers is that they can have those moments. Uh, you know, Fargo. Fargo is very dramatic at times and it's very funny at times. But then... Right they will present uh, a scene of horror such as, uh, you know, the wife's dead body laying on the floor and, uh, you know, and how it's just shrugged away and it's absolutely bone chilling. And then they can go right back in the comedy and right back in the drama. And it's like this amazing juggling act that they seem to perform with uh, many of their movies. Uh, Even something like, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan and I don't know why, because I dearly want to love the movie and I've never been able to, I can't connect with it, but I still appreciate it on many levels. But Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, you look at the Daniel Von Bargen character Mm -hmm. who's uh, constantly stalking after our boys in that film. And, um, you know, he could easily be... uh, you know, you slap a mask on him and he could be a slasher film character in yeah. a way. Yeah. You know, he's this sort of relentless figure who is dogging our heroes. And um, I don't know. I, I I think you're right in wanting to uh, sit down with them and just sort of pick their brains because I would love to know where that comes from, that sort of uh, vision of the world. Because it isn't just one movie. It isn't just a few movies. But it seems to inform their entire filmography, that kind of worldview where they're able to blend so many different tones at once. Yeah, I mean, um, I I am not a therapist, and I do not play one on TV, but I think they had a hell of childhood. <laughs> I mean, you just think of the, the John Turturro scenes where he says, you know, look in your heart, look in your heart. And, uh, and then uh, what's his name has to kill him. And, um, <clears throat> and it's just uh, horrible stuff. And I just think somehow what the Coen brothers may have done is take, uh, and this is a wild guess on my part, a really uh, traumatic childhood uh, and made it funny, uh, but at the same time preserving the horror, which I think is, a, is an incredible feat. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to have um, you know, somebody walking around with a, uh, a rifle and shooting people than it is to do the Coen brothers. Yeah, and I, you know, I guess anybody could attempt that, you know, mixing those things together. But I, I can't imagine that many filmmakers would be able to do it without it seeming so very jarring, you know, leaping yeah, from yeah. one uh, feeling to another. Whereas they sort of, again, they, they blend it perfectly. I'm, I'm, I'm beating the horse silly at this point, I know. But yeah. uh, it just, I'm in awe of how they're able to do that where, you know, you're laughing and crying and screaming all at once in a way when you watch their films. I, well, I think their gift is to create a world and then throw you into it. Um, and, and then they tell you this world operates on our rules and you will buy into it. Um, because otherwise, I mean, why didn't uh, the entire, I'll be sexist, why didn't the entire female population in the movie theater walk out as soon as they stole a baby? Um, because you're right in the, in the scene in the uh, station wagon driving back, she's, Holly Hunter has the, the baby and she's crying. She says, I think we got the best one. <laughs> <laughs> and you say, my God, you have stolen a human being. Um, so uh, I followed I think, immediately by 
And I think she meant it. I think the character genuinely meant it. Oh, I yeah. love him so much. I love him so much. She's had him for what, 32 seconds? <laughs> I love him so much. Best work Holly Hunter ever did. And of course, the actors are not commenting on their performance. That's that's why I have the respect for Nicolas Cage, because he's not he's not trying to signal to us that this is a surreal movie and it's not really me. I mean, he's in it. And uh, and I I believe everything that he does in it, and it, so it's a uh, it is this kind of uh, world. And they say um, this I will rip you out of whatever world you're used to and show you one. But in many ways, it reflects uh, some of the worst parts of our own society, and they get away with it. Now, you've mentioned that a couple of times, and I wanted to ask, you know, we were talking about the Coen brothers creating this world and sort of tossing us into it, and it's playing by its own rules, and yet you see parallels to where we're sort of at now. Can you, can you discuss anything specifically that you see going on in our world today that you can draw, you know, that, that sort of parallel to, uh, to the world of Raising Arizona, as it were? As soon as you started your question, I knew you were, where you were going, and I knew what my answer would be. Babies in cages. Uh, yeah. How about that? Um, did you ever think in your uh, when you were in the high school civics or whatever that you would uh, be seeing that the they would take babies and throw them in cages and lose the paperwork? Um, now I don't think the Cohen brothers would have tried that, but uh, of course you know stealing one of the quintuplets with the idea that they have enough babies. And we only stole one. You know, I mean. It's it's got its own internal logic, but uh, this this society that I'm in right now, I don't recognize. I, um, you know, I'm. Uh, it's funny we mentioned this just before we began this discussion. I mentioned that I am 37. You know, I am uh, I'm I'm aging somewhat. You know, I'm getting there definitely. <laughs> I'm I'm a child of the 80s, and you know, I would remember. Um, whether it be in a classroom, uh, being taught out of a textbook, or sitting at my grandfather's feet and listening to him tell, you know, uh, war tales of, uh, <clears throat> you know, his time in uh, World War II, there was this feeling that the just growing up myself, this is me personally, this is perhaps how dumb I was as a kid and a teenager and an adult, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, there was this feeling that the, the worst was sort of behind us as a society, mm -hmm. that there are certain things that we saw that we were never going to see again, uh, because, Hey, we know better now, right? We, we got right. through that and we are, uh, we're improving with every generation We're uh, we're marching forward into the future. And now after the last couple of years, I, I get the feeling that this generation is going to be looked at in the same way, maybe a few generations down the line, like, my God, look at what happened there how did that happen they knew better didn't they well we'll do better too and god knows how many more times we'll have to do this or is it just an endless cycle round and round we go i don't know but i you're right you mentioned babies in cages and that seems absolutely unthinkable and yet here we are and there it happened and this is this is a time in history that i can't believe that we're um that we're, we're talking with. about yeah, yeah and i i just i i can only imagine what the future is going to make of us right now, much as, you know, five or six year old me or 10 year old me could look back at say, uh, and you know what, <laughs> even before I even say this, I'll say, you know, uh, going back 10 years ago, I remember, uh, you know, with, uh, or over 10 years ago now with, uh, the Bush and the war and whatnot, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people, it, it always felt a little lazy to me. And I'm a lefty. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, who, who hated that war and was no fan of right. Bush, certainly. But it always felt lazy to me to immediately leap to he's a Hitler. You know, anytime a leader, you know, it, it always right. felt like cheap to me. And now... Where we're at now, I can look at it and think, you know, I, having been a child and looking back at Nazi Germany and thinking how, how, who, where was that society at that that man was able to be made a leader? And how was it that so many scores of people were so easily manipulated? You know, how did that happen? You know, how, how, how was nothing else done? And now we're here. And it's like we're 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 <laughs> yeah. we're watching this unfold again, and God knows how far it's going to go before you know uh, uh, the universe corrects itself again. God willing, fingers crossed. Well, I have a very good friend who's a uh, famous astrologer, Michael Luton, and he predicted this was uh, Pluto was going into Capricorn in the beginning of this century, and he said um, there will be blood in the streets. This was like. 2005, he gave a lecture in San Francisco that I attended, and uh, uh, he said, the last time this happened, uh, and it lasts about 20, 25 years, Pluto and Capricorn, uh, whether you like astrology or not, he said, the last time this happened was the American Revolution, and the time before that was the Protestant Reformation, um, which, and he said, it's it's kind of like the universe is uh, uh, saying to mankind, uh, if you won't fix this, I will just throw everything up in the air. Uh, and that's what it looks like is happening right now, um, especially um, in the last couple of years. The sense that um, none of none of what we thought in, in civics class is seems to apply anymore. And all you need to do is come up with a, a really good enemy. Uh, in the case of Hitler, he just decided it was all the Jews. And um, he had a, a population that was poverty struck after World War One, and a lot of stupid things happened in that war. Uh, so, um, you know, here we are. The, the pendulum just keeps uh, going wherever it wants to. But that, I think, the the genius of the Coen brothers is that they get us to laugh at this stuff. But it's under after you finish laughing, you say, "My God, that's amazing." So I don't know. Um, it, it's a, uh, I think just regular old blood splatter horror uh, is not half as scary as babies in cages. I agree. I agree. But mm-hmm. I want, you know, I mean, maybe that's, you know, it's funny. We're talking about a movie that's uh, over 30 years old now. And right. yet, you know, we can watch it and it is kind of, uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's a purpose of art, I think, in, in to some degree in times like this to make us... Um, you know, to make the horrors a bit more palatable. But I wonder, you know, when we watch Raising Arizona, we are laughing more than we are shrieking. Uh, right. <clears throat> and, I'm, I, you know, that's not really applicable to real life in a way, or is it? You know, I mean, it's it certainly seems like screaming isn't helping much right now. Um, no. No, and that's what... I think that's the uh, the the music track for Raising Arizona with that high pitched uh, voice that um, I can't re- reproduce it, but it uh, it comes screaming in, uh, especially on the tracking shots, um, and that's that's the, the 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 genius I think of these guys is that they they are really 
um, subversive in a lot of wonderful ways. They're saying, hey, look, you know, this is all screwed up and you're laughing at it. <laughs> and it is, you know, I, I, I love that sequence, too. And so many other moments in the movie, too, which are really, you know, not merely funny. I mean, they're they're. I think you called it a cartoon earlier, and I think you're absolutely right. It's slapsticky at times. And yet. Yeah. Uh, and yet we never stop caring about the lead characters. They're always still real people, even if the situations they're tossed into are anything but. And I think that's kind of amazing, that that sort of high-wire performance that the Coen brothers yeah. are doing with tone there. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned that they can be subversive at times. And I was going to ask, you know, you're, you're a screenwriter. And I, 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 I really wanted your opinion on this. You know, uh, I... As somebody who studied screenwriting, I can't tell you how many times I've uh, I've run across the lesson that uh, narration should be avoided at all turns in screenwriting because it's lazy and it's a crutch yeah. and you know yeah. it shouldn't be used. And yet, when we look at Raising Arizona, there are times where it's nothing but narration, and yeah. and yet it works so very well. So why is it that that works so well? Do you think in this case? Well, artists, real artists, can cheat. Um, and you don't, and you don't know it until you, <laughs> until you've bought into it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, because it's it's really tricky because they can make fun of uh, of a technique uh, and still make it uh, enticing. Um, I, I it's a it's a kind of a genius that um, that they can do. I mean, look at Salvador Dali. Here here's a perfect example of Salvador Dali. I'm. Um, Everything you see is not what's there, which is what the Buddha says, as a matter of fact, um, because we are energy, we are not matter. And there's something about the Coen brothers that I think is uh, is magical that way, that um, it really, um, it beggars the imagination to say, well, how did you think you were going to get away with this? Um, and, you know, the narration, obviously, um, it's narration is not drama, but in the case of this, it it all fit perfectly. Um, I mean, they were everybody was breaking the rules in uh, raising Arizona. Yeah, including I mean, absolutely the characters themselves. I uh, right. even even down to you know I I don't know how much we are audience we as audiences are meant to buy the fact that high can continually get incarcerated and just stroll right back out time and time and time again without, you know, uh, harsher sentences being sort of leveled at him. But yet, you know, again, it's covered so in such a charming way, I think, again, with the narration and the fact that, you know, we're slowly realizing, I think, throughout the course of that opening montage that lasts, I think, for what, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, something like yeah. that, that, um, you know, High is not just somebody who is living a lifestyle by continually robbing, you know, convenient convenience marts or whatnot, but he is he is constantly getting into trouble at a certain point just so he can continue to see Ed for a couple of minutes here and there every, you know, God knows how many months. It's uh, right. it's a really oddly sweet sort of note to begin the movie out on. And look what happens when High has a regular job in the machine shop. The, there's there's that really boring man uh, goes on and on and on about who he's, you know, I can't remember his dialogue. My kids can remember all those, the dialogue from that scene, but he's just awful. And you can, you can see that, 
a regular a regular honest day's work is just no fun at all um and uh and so high doesn't really take to it and then he keeps he needs more money uh and then as as bank robbers uh certainly uh, uh gale and uh evil evil uh i guess it's evil um gale and evil uh <laughs> they're going into the hayseed bank uh and they say one of them says freeze and the other says go get down to the floor <laughs> and of course the old man says well which one is it young fella because if we if you say freeze and we're supposed to get down the floor we'll be in motion <laughs> uh, and then uh, oh god what is it uh william Forsyth goes to that um uh, filling station to rob it and uh and asks about the balloons. He's he's getting stuff for the baby, and he says, uh, uh, "These these blow up in any funny shapes at all?" And Ben says, "Not not unless round is funny." Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> they've just robbed a bank. They they're terrible felons. They've got a baby, um, and we sit there laughing our asses off, you know, and uh, there's not a moment in, in one of our family celebrations where somebody doesn't say, well, which one is a young fella? Is it going to be freeze or get down on the floor? <laughs> so <laughs> I love those characters too. I, it was amazing. You know, I hadn't seen the movie in a while. Uh, this is the first time I'd revisited it in some time. And, you know, just to see William Forsyth and John Goodman at such a young <laughs> age and being so great as those characters. But you know, it was also funny, too, to realize that they are sort of, um, I don't know if they're sort of flip sides of the same coin, as it were, but it seems like uh, High and Ed are constantly being shown mirrors, uh, mm -hmm. funhouse yeah. mirrors, as it were, as to what they could possibly be. And, you know, no more so than when they are with other couples. And the Snotes brothers, in a sense, are kind of couples that are constantly pulling at high and constantly wanting to pull him in the direction of his old lifestyle and who he used to be. Whereas, you know, that uh, later couple, uh, Glenn and Dot. Glenn and Dot, yes. Know, now there's a horror show. Like, my God. And the little, the little kids <laughs> writing, what, shit on the wall and crayon? <laughs> so the, and, you know, constantly breaking things and Glenn just sort of shrugs it off. Like, aren't kids the, the, just the darndest, you know? Uh, but that sort of, that window into what high and Ed could become is just... Yeah kind of bone chilling in a way what with glenn's attitudes and the children's behavior and how this all sort of looks so unbearable and suffocating and and then we find out that they're swingers you know and <laughs> just and you know high's reaction to that is kind of amazing but you know i wonder where where does that leave high and ed by the end of it do you think because we've had the snotes brothers pull uh high in one direction we have glenn and dot sort of pulling uh Ed, it feels like, into sort of that direction, as it were. And by the end, the only person that they wind up spending time with that seems to sort of get them for a minute or two isn't a couple. It's actually, you know, Nathan, Arizona, right. without his wife, but saying that he really misses his wife and he doesn't know what he would do without her. It seems like just having that sort of one-on-one, -on -one, or at least two-on-one, -on -one, as it were, you know, conversation is what sort of... um corrects them or corrects their course as it were. And I was wondering as, as a fan of the movie and as a viewer, what you made of that in a way. Oh, I think um, they, they have done it almost uh, geometrically alpha, uh, what, you know, alphabetically uh, in some marvelous sense, because everybody's balanced against everybody else. I mean, you've got Glenn and dot uh, as 
the normal couple. And <laughs> I love Frances McDormand as Dot. She's just genius. But um, and and Glenn and Sam McMurray, who I'd never heard another word out of uh, that I know of. But um, they are absolutely fabulous. And you just say, well, you don't want to grow up to be them. Um, and then back at, at the work at the machine shop, you don't want to, uh, if you stay at that machine shop long enough, you will turn into that old guy who says, no, not that guy, the other guy, you know, the, the other guy. And um, so that what we, Nathan, Arizona is as close uh, as we get to a norm. And of course, the guys at the parole board, I guess, but they're all sort of um, wispy figures uh, and they keep letting him out. So, um the the world is totally complete and and uh, and and just we are boxed in in this universe and in many ways um, I I keep thinking that it's you know all you have to do is is uh, look very closely at what's really going on in your I don't know your town council or somewhere else and it's going to look a lot like raising Arizona. <laughs> So, okay, and, and to go back to the very beginning of the movie, I'm curious, yep. you know, with all that narration that's swirling around, yep. there is this idea that High is questioning the meaning of incarceration. Is it rehabilitation or <laughs> is it revenge? And does he ever really come down on one side of that, that argument, as it were? Does he ever decide if it was rehabilitation or revenge? And what are your own feelings on that, can I ask? Oh, um, it's clearly revenge. Um I just, my sons can do the entire speech of that guy up in the, I, is he, he's in the upper bunk, uh, who talks about, and then we had crawdads, and we didn't have crawdads, we ate sand. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, it's it's not as, it's, it's no prison that I've seen in any of the uh, prison movies <laughs> recently, because there's nobody buggering anybody. Uh, it was just this really boring man in the upper bunk uh, who kept talking about when we didn't have crawdads, we ate sand. Um, and so the the universe is, is perfectly uh, constructed. And I think, you know, you mentioned the narration. It seems to me the narration made it lyric in some ways, um, w which worked in the, in the Coen brothers' favor. As opposed to narration, like um, I couldn't get this across any other way, so I'm being I'm, I'm using a narrator. Uh, it gave it kind of a poetical lyric sense that uh, uh, that the Coen Brothers loved to do in their dialogue. I mean, just the thing about when when we didn't have food, or we didn't have crawdads, we ate sand, um, and uh, you know, as I said earlier, you know, where my seed could. Uh, my my wife's uh, something or other was a, a barren place where my seed could find no purchase. Um, so it always, the whole thing is kind of lyrical in the middle of, of a movie about a repeat offender uh, who, with an idiot wife, uh, kidnaps a baby. <laughs> and it is, you know, I, I, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, too, like I... I hadn't revisited this film in some time, and it occurred to me that I, it seems to me that this movie perhaps doesn't quite get the love that it probably should, uh, given how great it is. Because when we think of the Coen Brothers movies, you know, people are never at a loss to, um, 
uh, throw love at Fargo or The Big Lebowski or right. uh, any of their you know newer films. So why is it? Do you think, or maybe I'm completely wrong about this, but why is it that Raising Arizona has sort of fallen through the cracks, as it were? I don't know. Um, I mean, it, you know, we have some family favorites. The other one, uh, the, which is almost a horror movie, is What About Bob? Uh, <laughs> Raising Arizona and What About Bob have provided a soundtrack for the Miller family for years. Um, you know, that somehow my sons and I have the same, uh, virtually the same taste in, in entertainment. And, uh, uh, uh somebody is going to quote uh, Bill Murray in the middle of a Thanksgiving dinner and says, uh, I see you have salt on the table, but do you have a salt substitute? Um, you know, these, these lines, there's just um, the Coen brothers. It's, I guess it's an acquired taste, but um, uh, maybe, maybe uh, raising Arizona looks too silly to the modern viewer. I don't know. I really don't. You know, and I, I think to some extent that was sort of my uh, my feeling on the movie personally. When uh, when I went back to rewatch it, I was like, I, you know, I remember this movie. I haven't seen it in some time, but I remember really I, enjoying it. But I remember it is very, uh, you know, very silly and very slapsticky. And I didn't remember much in the way of substance in it. But watching it again, I was I was surprised to see that uh, it actually does have quite a bit. There is a lot of heart there. There is something to say about society. There is. Uh, there's a good deal of meat to the movie, aside from the fact that it does work as a slapstick comedy. The Coen brothers are, are subversive in a wonderful way. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We are we are sort of nearing the end here, and I know our connection okay. is a bit dodgy. Uh, we're sort of dancing around that. So, you know, in, in service of sort of wrapping up and getting to the end, um, do you have any sort of uh, final or parting thoughts on Raising Arizona and sort of its, uh, its place in the Coen brothers' filmography and how it stands alongside... Uh, the other movies they've made, and also movies of the 80s, and uh, why people should maybe give it a chance if they haven't pulled it out in a while. Well, uh, for one thing, you're going to laugh your ass off. Um, I mean, regardless of all of this fancy highfalutin uh, talk we've been doing about the movie, it is just um, a, a laugh riot, and uh, and also it's a it's a comment on my society. Um, and as for the movies of the, I mean, I just, I love all of the Coen Brothers movies. Um, the, the Raising Arizona one just seems to, to hit our kids and me uh, particularly well because it is so absurd. Um, and there's something about, I guess, um, uh, I was raised absurd and um, so were my kids. And so we just, we, we glom on to stuff that isn't, uh, you know, um, Here's here's the bad guy and this is the good guy, um, and so we we like things where the the lines are really messy. Um, and the other thing, I just not on this point at all. But if if anybody's, uh, I don't know whether it's Prime or Amazon Prime or Netflix, but Homecoming um, is really scary. Uh, and I'm not a big Julia Roberts fan, but anyway, I I, I recommend it to anybody who wants to see it uh, series. I have seen the trailers for that. I have not. Uh, I've not watched the show itself, but I'll need to give it a shot. It looked kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, it it is, and I I had to overcome because I I got tired of Julia Roberts back in the day after Pretty Woman um, when she was overused. But she's awfully good, and the and the thing is really uh, kind of um, a cautionary tale for our times. 
So cool. I'll make certain to check that out. Uh, certainly when it comes to television, when I think of the Coen brothers, I immediately sort of, uh, even though I don't think they have that uh, heavy a hand in it, if any at all, but uh, have you watched the Fargo television series? Um, no, to tell you the truth, I haven't. Um, uh, I just, um, um, for some reason, oh, no, I'm sorry. God, my, I'm 78. My mind goes in and out. Um, <laughs> yes, I have watched this, the Fargo series uh, all the way through, um, and uh, I like it. I mean, it's it's fun, but it but it's not um, it's not uh, Fargo. Um, and you know, I when uh, when well, what's her name? God, I'm, my mind is a is a loss. When Holly Hunter. Um, and uh, those and Francis, well, Fra Francis McDormand, I just think is a treasure. Um, and I forget which one she's married to. I hope they're still married. Um, and and in Fargo, she is just uh, not to be beaten, you know. But anyway, no, I haven't, I haven't. I have been watching Fargo, but it didn't stick with me like uh, Fargo did. It, uh, the only reason it occurred to mention it to me, aside from the talk of television, was that. Uh, you know, I, I think somebody pointed this out in an article once. I hadn't immediately considered it. But in addition to obviously being set in the same world as the Fargo film, right. there are many sort of uh, Easter eggs planted throughout uh, all three seasons that call back to other Coen Brothers movies. Not, right. If not directly, then they're sort of um, echoing moments and characters from other films. You know, uh, Billy Bob Thornton's character in the first uh, series is not unlike Anton Chigurh in many ways. Uh, you know, uh, the second and third series also feature, you know, characters who and situations that might have uh, felt at home in a in a Coen Brothers flick. If you know, uh, isn't a direct copy in many ways. You know, sort of repurposed for the series. But um, you know, I, I it occurred to me I don't think that we've seen a version of Higher Ed in uh, in that series yet. And I just wonder if it's going to continue on. If that will. Uh, that will change. It might be kind of fun to see uh, to see some version of those characters revisited again. Well, as you said, hi and Ed, it suddenly uh, bumped a, a little thing in my mind. Uh, thank you for saying them uh, because um, they are the innocents in this movie, and I, I say that uh, with malice aforethought. I mean, <laughs> they they are committing huge felonies, but they are they are totally unprepared for life and so in in many ways they are totally innocent um they wouldn't know their ass from a hole in the ground uh, half the time they keep making all the wrong choices um and uh, breezing through in some kind of uh way that uh beggars the imagination so um that that would be, <laughs> that would be funny to put them in uh, a modern tv fargo just these two losers wandering through who everybody finds really charming. <laughs> I would I would be there to watch it. Absolutely, yeah, I think that could be yeah. fantastic. Because <laughs> I mean, they they can't um, you know they can't win for losing. All right, I can't think of a better spot to stop than there. Summing up yep. those two characters, uh, sir. Thank you so much for your time and for being on the show and for choosing a a great and unexpected movie to chat about. I, I had a blast talking about it. But before we go, can I ask uh, where can folks find you at online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? All right, let's see. First of all, I quit Facebook after I saw that gentleman uh, testifying before Congress, so I'm not on <laughs> Facebook anymore. <laughs> um, I just uh, I think that's fair. 
And so you can find me at um, victormiller.com. It's a website. And then you can, if you want to send me an email. Uh, the other thing I do do, and um, uh, I've done it for years now, is I will read people's screenplays for free and promise not to steal them and, um, and, and give them notes and stuff like that there because I don't believe um, I should charge people for uh, for having an opinion. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, that's, um, that's kind of it. Um, uh, vmiller at victormiller.com will get me. And, um, if you want to send me a screenplay, send me, uh, an email. Very cool. I, I gotta imagine that's something that a lot of people will take you up on. So, well, and if they, and if they want autograph pictures and all that stuff, uh, I will tell them how to do that. Um, I do that for free as long as you do as you uh, include the postage. So, very cool. Now, can I ask? And if yep. it's something I don't even know if it's something we can talk about, uh, <laughs> but I had to touch on it just for a moment. Uh, yep. Can you tell us where we're at currently, or where you're at currently with uh, with Friday the Thirteenth, and uh, <laughs> sort of what your own plans are for the future when it comes to uh, to that franchise? Well, I have no plans because uh, I won the lawsuit um, in uh, federal court in Connecticut, um, but then they filed an appeal, uh, so they're going to drag this out. Um, and so I, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm not about to make plans uh, for something that is up in the air. Um, I, I can assure, because I, I got hun not hundreds, but I got many, many, many emails telling me what a shit I was. Uh, for ruining the Friday the 13th game, which I had nothing to do with. I'm simply trying to get a copyright back, which the Congress said I could after 35 years, which I did. Uh, so I am not I am not the problem. The problem is they don't want to settle, I guess. Um, I have no clue. Um, all I know is that it's still up to the courts. And so I have not made any plans. I haven't written any outlines. I haven't done anything because it would be silly, you know. Um, so... I'm just uh, I'm just sitting waiting in the uh, in the breezes here. Very cool. Now, can I ask just just for two seconds, if it's okay to sure. discuss? Then you mentioned the game, yeah. and I have you know being a, a horror nerd, as it were, I can't help but you know uh, read every story that goes up from time to time on the various horror sites out there, and I, I have noticed this sort of uh, this this this. From some people, not even very many, but from some oh, yeah. people that feels like you know. Uh, that they're not necessarily on your side or that perhaps they find you to be a, a problem when it comes to a franchise that they love. And just as, as the guy who created that character and as the guy who wrote that first film, what, uh, what would you say to those fans? Uh, you know, not necessarily, I'm not saying you need to defend yourself, but just in, in defense of that idea, as it were, you know, why they might be wrong about that, as it were. Well, um, let's see why they might be wrong. Um, it's hard to say. I did get a lot of emails that said, I wish you and your wife were dead. Um, which is just which, ridiculous. Anybody that, was having... that was a little tricky. Um, I, I, am not the, uh, I am not the boulder in the path. Um, all you have to do is, uh, you know, meet me halfway. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not holding anything up. I applied for my copyright. That's all I did. Uh, and then they slapped a suit on me, which stopped everything. So that seems to me to uh, line up that uh, I am not the problem. Uh, yeah, the problem because I um, tried to uh, get my rights back, which Congress said I could have. And a law they passed in 1978. 
So what can I tell you? Okay, so for all the fans out there listening who, who've been negative, knock it off. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, uh, have the other side uh, come to the table and we'll, we'll figure a way out of this. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you again for that, for uh, for chatting with that. And uh, again, thank you so much for talking about the movie, too. I had a blast chatting with you, and uh, and I really appreciate it. It was great fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments section below. Visit us at Facebook and on Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Happy trails. I want that baby! Give me that baby, you warthog from hell!